Hello, as always, and welcome to Bible Talk. I'm glad we could be together again, and if you happen to be a first-time participant, so glad you joined us. Uh, we're continuing our Bible Talk, and we'll be for the rest of this year in the book of Revelation. Uh, last week, we did an introductory overview, and uh, this week, we're going to continue in chapter one with some introductory information and look at some text there. So, Let's uh, pray together, and we'll jump right in. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for your truth, and I pray that as we open uh, the book of Revelation that you would help us to uh, hear you and to uh, know Christ and to follow him and to receive the blessings that are promised by John uh, for uh, our attentiveness to this book. Uh, may the book impact us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said last week, for those of you that were with me and maybe those who weren't, just as a reminder, the book of Revelation is, is obviously a different kind of book from the rest of the books in the Bible. And the book of Revelation is in a literary genre we call apocalyptic literature. And apocalyptic literature is, is, an, is a, a, a style of literature that uses imagery uh, and figures of speech and those sorts of things to convey um, truth emblematically. And we talked about last week about uh, one of the approaches to the interpretation of the book of Revelation is the idealist interpretation, which takes that into account and sees these things as symbolic. Um, the one of the uh, all of the imagery and so forth. One of the key uh, uh, commentators on Revelation years ago said, "If the plain sense makes sense, don't try to make another sense of it." So, in other words, um, a lot of of the, this this book, in and of itself, because of the way it's written and the imagery involved with the supernatural vision that John was exposed to, and so forth and so on lends itself to a lot of variation in interpretation and understanding. And so that's something that's unique about the book of Revelation. And I think one of the things that leads to a lot of, I don't want to say confusion, but a lot of variance in understanding of the book of Revelation. Uh, the other thing that we didn't talk about last week in terms of, of background and overview is that so much of the imagery comes out of the Old Testament. Um, that's, now, that's significant. Um, and it, it really brings to bear, you know, how much of John's writing was based on exactly what he saw and recording what he saw versus recording the truth that was communicated to him and him couching it in an Old Testament context well, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, obviously, uh, we'll have to wait till we get to heaven and maybe ask John about it. But at the same time, um, that's another really important, I think, ignored fact about the book of Revelation is that one of the primary rules of Bible interpretation is that you let the Scripture interpret Scripture. And if there is a a, a reference to something 
at, in, later on in the Bible from something that's previously mentioned in the Bible, then the responsible way to interpret that passage is not only to look at it in its immediate context where it's found, but what, what shapes that understanding is its primary and previous usage. So in other words, to ignore the previous understanding and what that originally meant and why wouldn't the author that's using that in the book of the Bible, why wouldn't that author intend to play off of that original meaning? Uh, it just, it, it, it would be irresponsible. So what, what we tend to do in, in the modern evangelical church is we tend to read the book of Revelation and, and we tend to try to look at the evening news or now the 24-hour news cycle to interpret and understand the book of Revelation. It's, it's a huge mistake, huge mistake. We should first see how much of what is said is either a direct quote or an allusion to something that's already been written previously in the Bible and see how that impacts our understanding of what's being said in the book of Revelation. So those are some, some common misconceptions and some common, uh, I think, wrong applications of the book of Revelation and wrong approaches to the book of Revelation. Now, as, as I, I, I alluded to last week, and we'll be saying more about as we move forward in this process, is that I'm very much committed to the idea that we looked at the four typical methods of interpretation, hermeneutics, if you will, which is basically a strategy for interpreting the Bible. And throughout the history of the church in different eras, there have been primary hermeneutics. Um, like Augustine was an allegorical hermeneutic. Um, in other words, everything in, in the scripture was representative of something else or figurative in its speaking. Like, for example, it would be from, <coughs> from that method of interpretation and from Augustine that you would come up with a view of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ that's mentioned in the book of Revelation chapter 20. Um, the amillennial view, which is most the most accepted and most believed view of the millennium, not just throughout the centuries, but even in contemporary views of Christianity, by far the majority of Christians have had an amillennial view based on an Augustinian understanding that the, the number thousand there represents a, a figurative number, not a literal number. It's a, a number representing a, a, a long, full period of time. Um, and how one, in, so therefore the, the millennium that's being talked about from that point of view and based on that biblical allegorical hermeneutic would be that which um, lends itself to a figurative understanding of the, of the millennial rule of Christ and it not being a literal amount of years but a, a long period of time. And in fact, the amillennial view views pretty much the church age today as the millennial period. Um, and uh, the word A in front of millennial means a thousand, and A would be, it's a, it's a Greek um, grammatical rhetorical device that means negative, minus. 
In other words, not a literal thousand. Whereas, uh, for example, the grammatical historical approach to uh, interpretation of scripture, the, hermen the grammatical historical hermeneutic, where you try to find out what the original author said to the original reader in its original historical context, and then you try to apply that to uh, a contemporary situation, uh, then that grammatical historical context would, 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 would lend itself more to a more literal interpretation. In other words, I said earlier about a one Bible scholar saying, if the plain sense makes sense, don't try to make another sense. Well, so in that, what I'm getting at is that um, um, it, it, it is those, that's how the hermeneutic can affect because the grammatical historical would lend itself to what's called a premillennial view of the thousand-year reign of Christ mentioned in Revelation 20. Pre meaning we're, we're, we're not there yet that Jesus is coming back and going to literally reign on the earth for a thousand years. And a face value reading of that chapter would produce that conclusion. Whereas if you're using an allegorical hermeneutic, as, as Augustine would have used, then it's not going to be a face value reading in a literal thousand years. So that, that's how those things uh, play together, and that's how they are, are related and so forth and so on. Um, so that, that's a little bit more of background as to the approach to the book of Revelation. Now, um, what we have in the first, what, uh, first really uh, nine verses is that, uh, uh, is we have, uh, and, and, well, I guess you could say 11 verses. Um, you have an introduction. And uh, one Bible commentator says we have an apocalyptic introduction and we have an epistolatory or a introduction to the letter and to the recipients of the letter. And then we have a personal introduction from John himself. And I'm going to read those 11 verses and we'll, we'll talk about that. And we'll probably get back to this next week as well. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear uh, the words of this pro prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Now, in, in any uh, uh, interestingly, um, I always point out it doesn't say understand. See, when people approach, well, see, we want control over the book. We want, oh, well, this means this. So, okay, I don't have to be worried about it because this means this, and now I'm controlling the book. No, you let the book control you. Enter into the reality of Christ and his reign. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and to the ruler and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, 
and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was and is and who is to come, the Almighty. So verses 4 through 8 would be what one Bible commentator calls the epistolatory introduction. In other words, it's the, the greeting in the letter that opens the letter to the readers and greets the readers. And then the personal introduction. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. So John had been exiled to the island of Patmos. It's an island in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Asia Minor. And he was in the spirit, and it actually says in spirit. It doesn't say, there's no thee there. On the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, so that's the personal introduction. John introduces himself and the context in which he was inspired um, uh, to write. So John uh, has these introductions. Now, what I want to do is I want to go back to the what, again, is called uh, by one commentator the uh, apocalyptic introduction. In other words, the word apocalyptic is translated revelation. It's a revealing. And apocalyptic literature was symbolic language that abstractly described future events. But what we discover as we delve into Revelation is it's not purely the apocalyptic genre of that day. So I want to look here at the first five words, which are the key to the whole book, and we'll conclude with that today. We'll jump in next week where we pick off, where we leave off. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Years ago, when I was first studying the book, and I looked at that, and and I was studying that that phrase, um, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what you discover if you break it down in studying the rig, original language, you find that is it is a genitive construction of Jesus Christ. That the 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 uh, prepositional phrase of Jesus Christ is a genitive construction in terms of grammar. And the characteristic of a genitive is uh, possession. Uh, and, and, you know, a focus on someone. But according to the grammarians, who are very technical and very well informed about these things, that the genitive construction can be either subjective or objective. And, uh, and, and, and I want to revisit that because... It means that, is Jesus the object of the revelation? In other words, is it about him? Or is he the subject of the revelation? Is, is, or is subjectively, does it belong to him? In other words, like, is he the possessor of it? Well, my conclusion was that, as I think I may have mentioned in last week's Bible talk, is that I came to the conclusion, why can't it be both? And when I read the translator notes from the New English translation of the Bible, 
they said in their translator notes just that, and I was giddy with excitement. But the point is, and I want to reiterate this, and I want to leave with this again, because I cannot emphasize this enough, because I think we read Revelation with ourselves in mind. Oh, I want to know what's going to happen at the end times because I'm afraid it's going to get crazy and I need to know I'm going to be okay. And, and oh my goodness, isn't this something? Folks, that's exactly, it's not about us. It's about, it's the same way as the other 65 books of the Bible. It's about Jesus Christ and truth about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's already done and the consequences of what he's already done both now and forever are what are revealed in this book. That's the focus of the book of Revelation. And frankly, I think it's somewhat idolatrous to make it about us. Well, I'm not making it about us. Yes, you are. Yes, you do. When we make it something we read because we're afraid, needing to know what's going to happen next, because we want to be comforted and make sure that we're not going to be surprised by it. Folks, God is going to do what he's always done. He's going to do what he's always done straightforwardly, but he's never going to do it in a way we expect. He's always going to surprise us. Here's what we know, that Jesus has already settled the matter. <laughs> Let me tell you why you're going to be okay. Because Jesus is alive. And, and look what it said down there in... Uh, in, in verse, uh, he is Jesus Christ, the faithful witness from uh, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion. That's all we need to know. That's all we need to know. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, forget, forgive me for getting worked up. This is worth getting worked up over. Uh, do you agree? All right. Well, let's play together. We'll see you next time, and we'll just pick up there in chapter one where we left off, and I'll try to keep from preaching, okay? Lord, thank you for the truth of Jesus has accomplished the victory. And thank you that he has shared it with us. In his name, amen. See you next time.